Welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Dr Claire Mallinson, consultant anaesthetist at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital NHS Trust in London. And today I am joined by Dr Michael Devlin, Head of Professional Standards and Liaison at the Medical Defence Union, and Dr Craig Pursehouse, Lecturer in Law at the University of Leeds. Following on from the debate at Anesthesia 2021, titled This House Believes Doctors Tackling COVID-19 Be Immune from Negligence Liability Claims, we are going to have a further conversation around this topic. Michael, would you like to tell us about your thoughts on tackling immunity from negligence for doctors in the pandemic? Thank you, Claire. And uh, again, I was grateful to have the opportunity to speak alongside Craig uh, at this afternoon's conference and it's uh, great also to have the opportunity to again keep that discussion going but very broadly uh, what we have been asking for um, is for there to be a general immunity uh, or an exemption for doctors and other healthcare professionals uh, for claims that have arisen as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that includes uh, claims that relate to the treatments of patients who are ill with COVID um, and also the uh, unanticipated problems that we've subsequently seen. So the delays in diagnosis um, and the delays in starting treatments of non-COVID conditions. And you might well ask yourself, well, what's what's in it for the MDU? Why is the MDU that concerned about claims? And what it boils down to um, is it's all about the effect that this has um, on doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals. Uh, it's not so much that uh, we're concerned that we will have to pick up any liabilities with these claims. We won't. Those are all will be picked up by the um, NHS. So it's not specifically um, about the cost, although I will come back to that. Um, it's really about the distress and the anxiety and the constant worry that uh, doctors have been experiencing really since March, April of last year. And we think that one extra layer that we will see more of in the next few years will be claims because there'll be a slight lag before we start to see these. And people might say, well, surely you should be focusing on things like the GMC and criminal law. And with regards to that, um, the GMC have already uh, been um, very proactive. They very early on in the pandemic issued guidance that suggested they would very much take into account the context the doctors found themselves in. And the criminal law um, is probably about um, as good as we've seen it, certainly in the 25 years or so that I've been working in medical law. So um, although there is a risk, we don't think that's going to be a significant one. So the sort of concern is that it will just be these claims that start trickling in in a few years time, just as doctors are perhaps beginning to get back on their feet, recover emotionally and physically from the uh, pandemic. So if we can talk about it in that context and see it as a way to help to achieve uh, doctors coming to terms with what's happened, uh, not beat them down any anymore and encourage them to stay within the profession at what's going to be a crucial time because goodness knows the next few years are all going to be about 
clearing the backlog of thousands of patients who need treatment. So I'll rest it there for now, uh, um, and hopefully that gives you a sort of flavour of where we're coming from. So Craig, um, Craig Pushhouse, you, you spoke this afternoon against um, the House that believes that doctors tackling COVID-19 should be immune from negligence liability claims. So Craig, do you want to tell us um, your thoughts on this matter of immunity? Thanks, Claire. I'm really happy to be discussing this with you, Michael. Uh, so to summarise my arguments, basically, I argue that in many cases, immunity will be superfluous. So many doctors won't have anything to worry about with a negligence claim. And in other cases, it would be unfair to patients to grant them immunity in those rare situations where a doctor would have something to worry about. So I discussed the law on negligence and showed that in order to establish that a doctor has breached their duty of care, they'd have to uh, fail to comply with a responsible body of medical opinion and their actions would also have, have to have no logical basis. So provided they could find other doctors who acted as they did and that opinion was a logical one, they won't be negligent, even if the majority would have acted differently. And this is judged by the standard of their post. Also, negligence is context sensitive. So in a, they've said in several cases that in what's called battle conditions or an emergency, the standard of care will be lower. In a case called Mulholland and Medway, they said that doctors in a pressurised A&E department will have to make quick judgments and the standard of care needs to be calibrated in a manner reflecting reality. Given this, it will be quite difficult for patients to show that a doctor has breached their duty of care when it's in pandemic conditions. In those rare cases where a patient can establish this, I think it would be unfair to send those patients away empty-handed and, and left to rely on meagre state benefits. Um, a small minority of doctors will make egregious errors, and in those types of cases, they should be liable um, in negligence. And finally, I, I just said that doctors are can be patients too. They're employees. If doctors have immunity, why would we not extend this to hospital managers who are also making difficult decisions during COVID. I don't think many doctors would appreciate being denied compensation when they've had to work in an unsafe environment. And I'm not sure they'd accept um, this as an excuse if they were in the same situation as the patient. Michael and Craig, thank you very much. And it's great to uh, allow us to think about this as a a profession who are uh, heavily involved in the in the pandemic and to reflect and think about uh, what this means for us. And um, many of us were reallocated to places uh, that we don't normally work and should we really be judged on the standard of their uh, you know the post that you're going into or as an anaesthetist uh, in that area. Um, you know, so is it the normal post holder or is it you as an anaesthetist going into emergency medicine, ITU, when you've not worked there for a long time? So does this uh, differ with time into the pandemic as well? Because many people were, you know, kind of working even harder. Our second surge was great. So it would be quite interesting to hear, Craig, 
um, what you think uh, about that. I've actually been reflecting on this in the in the time since our, our debate earlier, actually. So in the debate, I said, well, the law adopts this objective standard that you've got to meet uh, the standard of your post. And the reason why it does this is because the patient is expected uh, is expecting a particular standard of care when they're seen by um, a doctor in that post. So the law tries to balance what's fair with the doctor with what's fair with the patient. And this might seem particularly, this objective standard might be unfair on doctors when they're working in a different post to which they normally do or a different um, speciality, just as it's unfair that junior doctors are meant to reach the standard of more senior colleagues. This, however, has to be balanced with what's fair for the patient. If they're being treated by a particular doctor, it might they might see it um, as, as unfair that they've received substandard A&E care just because the person treating them was an anaesthetist. They've not had any say over that situation. Um, so in the debate, I, I presented um, that view, but having reflected on the matter, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to immunity in that kind of situation. Um, what I would be more opposed to would be is if an anaesthetist failed to meet the standard of the reasonable anaesthetist. Um, I suppose the um, indemnity would mean that they wouldn't have to pay out if they were working in a different post but i do accept um, a lot of michael's arguments on this they could be very stressful for people working in different posts so uh, i hope you don't mind that my answer is slightly different to the one i gave in the in the debate no, course, i was thinking i've been thinking it over and i was like <laughs> no actually that is quite an, an unfair yeah. situation and, and, you know, um, as professionals, we all do have to think and reflect and, and, and what that means. And uh, Michael, do you think do you think lawyers are the right people to make the decisions on if, if patients should receive negligence benefits uh, and that case is against the, the doctor? Surely there must be a better way of sorting this out. Um, so is it mediation or, or a legal claim? I suppose it's about money in the end, isn't it? You're right, it is about money. Um, I think there's an awful lot of myths uh, spoken about when it comes to claims. What is it that they're meant to achieve? But ultimately, it's about the money. Um, it's about putting the patient back in the position that, that they would have been in, but for the negligence, insofar as money can. So if someone um, has been su uh, suffered damage during spinal surgery and they end up in a wheelchair, then most people will say, well, no amount of money can ever compensate for that. But of course, the law tries to do that. It looks at um, what you will need going forward in terms of future care, um, what your potential loss of earnings are, and so on and so forth. So the law is, is set up to do that. And do I think lawyers are the right people? Yes, I do, because you do need experts to be able to um, analyze these types of issues. Um, to quantify claims and to do it according to precedent and to make sure that they get all of that right. Um, but the fundamental problem here is that it, it, it doesn't really help those who have to face the claims. 
um, it's often felt that because claims are brought against the employer in the NHS, that therefore the jobbing doctor who's working at the coal base doesn't have to worry about it. But that's just not our experience. They do worry about it. It's hard not to take it personally when you personally uh, have been responsible for failure in someone's care. We haven't yet reached the pinnacle of a no-blame culture. Um, and part of what we're calling for is to, time to sort of step back, to reassess the situation. And you're right, is there another way of doing it? Well, um, we think there is. We think this is one of the ways that you could do it in the short term and get us over the, the real difficulties that we think are around the corner in terms of people thinking about leaving the uh, profession and having to deal with a huge backlog of treatment. So as a starting point, if you like, the debate um, is something that we would like to continue uh, rather than say this is the finished article. And Craig and Michael, do you, do you think that the whole negligence system uh, could be reviewed? Uh, you know, we've been learning a lot through COVID and um, it feels unsatisfactory, doesn't it? As you say, that doctors are the named uh, people in, in claims. Craig, are you aware of any hospital managers being subject to a negligence claim? Um, you suggest that, um, <coughs> you know, NHS uh, trusts may be um, sued because of lack of PPE or, or, or support for, for doctors. And, and so that's doctors as the claimants, I suppose, yeah. as well. I suppose the problem at the moment is there's such a big time lag between claims that I've not been aware of any um, any claims as a result of COVID um, in, in negligence yet, but they normally take a, a couple of years to, to filter through the system. But it's certainly possible people have sued, um, sued hospitals before for providing an unsafe system system of work um does that just go as to you... a, is that go does that is that a named person within the management structure or is it just the anonymous trust because i think the problem mm. michael for us as doctors is it, it's it's your name and your registration number that gets put up against a, a claim doesn't it so craig have, have named mm. people ever named, been... they have featured in the so for the type of like employment case i'm thinking of there has been cases for things like harassment at work or um there's cases with uh, receptionists giving negligent advice to a patient so other professionals um, or other people in the hospital can be sued but yeah in the medical negligence context uh, doctors are more at the coal face so they tend to be um, feature a lot more than the sort of employers liability cases but just as if I um, for example an asbestos tile fell from the ceiling um, if that had landed on me I could have sued um, if I slipped when there's uh, no wet floor sign on a puddle I'd be able to sue my employer um, you, your employer owes a duty to provide a safe system of, of work so a doctor could sue hospital manager or or the hospital for that kind of situation um, and michael we, there was a discussion wasn't there about you know the exceptional circumstances that doctors are find, finding themselves in, in in the pandemic especially early days when we were not sure of what the disease was or the extent of it and 
who it was going to affect. Um, but I'm very wary of the comment that the context of the situation would be taken into account. You, you wrote very well about when the applause ends and I think we've all forgotten the, about the Thursday night clapping and uh, I'm just aware that uh, in the case of uh, Dr. Bauer Garber that she wasn't protected by the fact that she was working in a challenging emergency situation where there wasn't senior support uh, and there was no aid from the trust management and yet she was still still named and um, you know had a very difficult time in that case so it does I suppose that case has certainly made us wary of um, the promise that the exceptional circumstances would be taken into consideration. I think that's right Claire and um, I think the case of um, Dr Bauer Garber has been one of the defining ones um, in recent years. It has really made people sit up and take notice um, of the peculiar difficulties that doctors face. Um, one of, for me, the really interesting things about Dr Bauer Garber um, is that she had absolutely wonderful appraisals. Um, she was said by all those who worked with her and those who supervised her, because she was um, quite a senior trainee at the um, time um, of the incident, that led to her um, conviction. Um, what everyone said was just how good and how skilled that she was, but yet she faced a whole set of circumstances um, that all, when you took them together, um, contrived to uh, result in a situation that resulted in a child's death. And cl clearly, no one would ever want to see that. What we'd all want to see is um, a system working more effectively um, that supported doctors, that reduced the chances of that happening. But the difficulty that we have is the law doesn't give any discounts. Um, Craig uh, very sort of helpfully um, flagged up a case of uh, Mulholland um, and Medway um, NHS Trust, um, and that was about, uh, again, um, ironically, a very good, very skilled um, casualty uh, officer um, who saw a patient um, with uh, headaches. And um, the issue was, um, had she considered carefully all the possible diagnoses um, that were uh, potential in that particular case? And what the judge said, uh, that actually, no, there's no counsel of perfection here. You've got to take into account the circumstances, i.e. when you've got to make a decision quickly um, in casualty, you don't have time to go off and read the journals, um, do some research, go and sort of chat to four or five senior doctors to try and arrive at the right uh, diagnosis. But that to us still leaves us in a very unsatisfactory state. Um, yes, there might be that margin of appreciation given to doctors in those circumstances, but the only way you can be sure um, that doctors will be properly protected is for there to be um, a system of immunity in certain circumstances. Um, so that's what we call for simply because we don't think the law is sufficiently adaptable uh, to protect doctors um, when, when it needs to. And thinking about the life and death decisions that were being made uh, throughout the whole of the pandemic and particularly uh, in the first surge when we were learning and 
there were some significant do not resuscitate CPR decisions. Do you think that uh, that will have repercussions from families who feel that the wrong decision was made uh, and, you know, that resources should have been afforded to more people? Um, and, you know, does that create, um, you know, maybe terms for manslaughter, which are not uh, covered by NHS uh, indemnity and liability. So um, are those decisions uh, going to be in years to come? Are they going to be part of, of this wider discussion, which may affect people even more than, um, you know, something uh, maybe not perfect, but this is a very, very uh, harsh decision. Uh, that, and hard decision that people have, have had to make. So, Craig, what do you think there? Well, there's all sorts of problems with the law on gross negligence, manslaughter, and I know you mentioned the Bauer Garber case. Um, I see that as a very problematic case too. Um, likewise, I don't necessarily think someone should face a gross negligence, manslaughter charge for the type of situation you've just described. However, I I would like to sort of flip the question. Um, these, these are sort of borderline difficult cases. What about cases where doctors have committed quite egregious errors? If we got rid of all criminal liability or all tort claims, what's, um, I suppose we'd have the, the GM, GMC, but, um, is, is that going to be enough protection for patients in those situations where there are really egregious egregious errors? Why shouldn't patients be able to hold doctors to account in those kinds of situations? I, I perhaps think that the negligence standard is um, a, bit, a bit harsh on doctors and gross negligence manslaughter, I don't even think should be... Um, a, a criminal offence. It's such a vague, um, vague criminal offence. To determine what is classed as gross negligence, the jury is directed that gross negligence is negligence that's criminal. So it's a circular def definition because what we're trying to work out is what's the crime of gross negligence. Uh, manslaughter it's gross negligence that's negligence that's criminal it's it's a, it's a circular definition so I've got all sorts of problems with that but I do think the law does have some role in regulating the medical profession particularly in cases where there have been more uh, egregious um, errors and behavior and Michael, I mean, we, we had earlier in the day today, you know, kind of particularly harsh case uh, that we heard about. And, you know, so doctors do get caught um, in difficulty uh, with these very harsh legal decisions. How can we, you know, support all our colleagues um, who find themselves in these very complex legal matters where we personally don't have the expertise? Um, and perhaps, um, you know, only having their own NHS liability makes them quite exposed. It does, Claire. And um, I think one of the, the real fundamental 
problems and one of the concerns that doctors have um, is what we describe as uh, multiple jeopardy and that's something of a term of art but what it means is that out of a single clinical incident uh, you could have an NHS complaint that complaint could go to the ombudsman there could be adverse publicity there could be an NHS claim the patient dies there could be a coroner's case there could be a criminal investigation all that stems just from the one incident um, and this is the problem and I think it's the problem that really was well encapsulated by David Selling which we've seen with uh, Dr uh, Garber as well um, that uh, not only were their careers almost ruined uh, um, in one case and certainly ruined in the other um, they lost their ability to uh, work in their profession which of course is what the GMC does um, and they also had then a criminal sanction placed on top of that and that's as well as you know, potentially their um, trusts or their hospitals paying out compensation or indeed paying out compensation um, personally so, so there just is too much going on and and our view is that it is perfectly adequate for the regulator to say um, this is conduct which is Craig has rightly flagged up what do we do with conduct that is so egregious that it requires some kind of action well that's exactly what the GMC is there for uh, um, and we say just leave it to them um, and the problem is there is a, a, um, certainly a sense that um, the criminal law is there to step in when it's expedient to do so when the politicians think it might be a good idea and we're seeing this at the moment and um, I'll get off my hobby horse quite soon but um, at the moment there is a consultation going on in Northern Ireland um, to do with the statutory duty of candour and unlike um, all other parts of UK and indeed what's been contemplated in the, in the Republic of Ireland um, it is proposed that there is a criminal sanction for breach of that duty of candour in Northern Ireland um, I don't know who in their right mind thinks that this will make care safer or that will somehow help um, doctors and nurses to focus on the um, on, on the task in hand. It won't do any, um, any of that um, and our sort of concern is it could make the situation inadvertently a thousand times worse. So uh, um, I would finish by saying I really do think there has to be a fundamental um, pause and to look again at how we treat doctors um, when things go seriously wrong because the current situation to me is a bit on the disproportionate side. Thank you very much. Well, this has been an amazing discussion um, as the profession stepped up, as the rest of the country stepped back and now we're reflecting on what we've done and how we did it and um, as you've uh, said, uh, Michael, the uh, applause has now stopped and we're going to face the face the music as we realise what backlog of cases we've got. And Craig, thank you for um, a difficult job of speaking <laughs> to doctors uh, about why we shouldn't protect them from uh, negligence liability. But our main pursuit is that of uh, safe patient care. Uh, in an appropriate environment and uh, it's been great to discuss this with both of you and I'd like to thank you very much and uh, welcome you to the College of Anaesthetists on another occasion uh, to continue with really interesting discussions. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. 
Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.